evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page. Tonight, we continue our story The Hound of the Baskervilles by Arthur Conan Doyle. For a moment, I wished that I were armed. Sterndale's fierce face turned to a dusky red. His eyes glared, and the knotted, passionate veins started out in his forehead while he sprang forward with clenched hands towards my companion. Then he stopped, and with a violent effort he resumed a cold, rigid calmness, which was perhaps more suggestive of danger than his hot-headed outburst. "'I have lived so long among savages and beyond the law,' said he, "'that I have got into the way of being a law to myself.' You would do well, Mr. Holmes, not to forget it, for I have no desire to do you an injury. Nor have I any desire to do you an injury, Dr. Sterndale. Surely the clearest proof of it is that, knowing what I know, I have sent for you and not the police. Sterndale sat down with a gasp, overawed for, perhaps, the first time in his adventurous life. There was a calm assurance of power in Holmes's manner which could not be withstood. Our visitor stammered for a moment, his great hands opening and shutting in his agitation. "'What do you mean?' he asked at last. "'If this is bluff upon your part, Mr. Holmes, you have chosen a bad man for your experiment. Let us have no more beating about the bush. What do you mean?' "'I will tell you,' said Holmes." And the reason why I will tell you is that I hope frankness may beget frankness. What my next step may be will depend entirely upon the nature of your own defense. My defense? Yes, sir. My defense against what? Against the charge of killing Mortimer Trigenis. Sterndale mopped his forehead with his handkerchief. Upon my word, you are getting on, said he. Do all your successes depend upon this prodigious power of bluff? The bluff, said Holmes sternly, is upon your side, Dr. Leon Sterndale, and not upon mine. As a proof, I will tell you some of the facts upon which my conclusions are based. Of your return from Plymouth, allowing much of your property to go on to Africa, I will say nothing save that it first informed me that you were one of the factors which had to be taken into account in reconstructing this drama. I came back. You have heard your reasons and regard them as unconvincing and inadequate. We will pass that. You came down here to ask me whom I suspected. I refused to answer you. You then went to the vicarage, waited outside it for some time, and finally returned to your cottage. How do you know that? I followed you. I saw no one. That is what you may expect to see when I follow you. You spent a restless night at your cottage, and you formed certain plans, which in the early morning you proceeded to put into execution. Leaving your door just as day was breaking, you filled your pocket with some reddish gravel that was lying heaped beside your gate. 
Sterndale gave a violent start and looked at Holmes in amazement. You then walked swiftly for the mile which separated you from the vicarage. You were wearing, I may remark, the same pair of ribbed tennis shoes, which are at the present moment upon your feet. At the vicarage you passed through the orchard and the side hedge, coming out under the window of the lodger Trigenis. It was now daylight, but the household was not yet stirring. You drew some of the gravel from your pocket, and you threw it up at the window above you. Sterndale sprang to his feet. I believe that you are the devil himself, he cried. Holmes smiled at the compliment. It took two or possibly three handfuls before the lodger came to the window. You beckoned him to come down. He dressed hurriedly and descended to his sitting room. You entered by the window. There was an interview, a short one, during which you walked up and down the room, passed out and closed the window, standing on the lawn outside smoking a cigar and watching what occurred. Finally, after the death of Trigenis, you withdrew as you had come. Now, Dr. Sterndale, how do you justify such conduct? And what were the motives for your actions? If you prevaricate or trifle with me, give you my assurance that the matter will pass out of my hands forever. Our visitor's face had turned ashen gray as he listened to the words of his accuser. Now he sat for some time in thought with his face sunk in his hands. Then, with a sudden impulsive gesture, he plucked a photograph from his breast pocket and threw it on the rustic table before us. This is why I have done it, said he. It showed the Boston face of a very beautiful woman. Holmes stooped over it. Brenda Trigenis, said he. Yes, Brenda Trigenis, repeated our visitor. For years I have loved her. For years she has loved me. There is a secret of that Cornish seclusion which people have marveled at. It has brought me close to the one thing on earth that was dear to me. I could not marry her, for I have a wife who has left me for years, and yet whom by the deplorable laws of England I could not divorce. For years Brenda waited, for years I waited, and this is what we have waited for. A terrible sob shook his great frame, and he clutched his throat under his brindled beard. Then, with an effort, he mastered himself and spoke on. The vicar knew. He was in our confidence. He would tell you that she was an angel upon earth. That was why he telegraphed to me and I returned. What was my baggage or Africa to me when I learned that such a fate had come upon my darling? There, you have the missing clue to my action. Mr. Holmes. Proceed, said my friend. Dr. Sterndale drew from his pocket a paper packet and laid it upon the table. On the outside was written, Radix Pedis Diaboli, with a red poison label beneath it. He pushed it towards me. I understand that you are a doctor, sir. Have you ever heard of this preparation? Devil's foot root. No, I have never heard of it. It is no reflection upon your professional knowledge, said he. For I believe that, Save for one sample, in a laboratory at Buddha, there is no other specimen in Europe. It has not yet found its way either into the pharmacopoeia or into the literature of toxicology. 
The root is shaped like a foot, half human, half goat-like, hence the fanciful name given by a botanical missionary. It is used as an ordeal poison by the medicine men in certain districts of West Africa and is kept as a secret among them. This particular specimen I obtained under very extraordinary circumstances in the Ubangje country. He opened the paper as he spoke and disclosed a heap of reddish-brown, snuff-like powder. "'Well, sir,' asked Holmes sternly, "'I am about to tell you, Mr. Holmes, all that actually occurred, "'for you already know so much that it is clearly to my interest that you should know all. "'I have already explained the relationship in which I stood to the Georgina's family. "'For the sake of the sister, I was friendly with the brothers.' It was a family quarrel about money, which is strange, this man Mortimer. But it was supposed to be made up, and I afterwards met him as I did the others. He was a sly, subtle, scheming man, and several things arose which gave me a suspicion of him, but I had no cause for any positive quarrel. One day, only a couple of weeks ago, he came down to my cottage, and I showed him some of my African curiosities. Among other things, I exhibited this powder— and I told him of its strange properties, how it stimulates those brain centers which control the emotion of fear, and how either madness or death is the fate of the unhappy person who was subjected to the ordeal by the priest of his tribe. I told him how powerless European science would be to detect it. How he took it, I cannot say, for I never left the room. But there is no doubt that it was then, while I was opening cabinets and stooping the boxes, that he managed to abstract some of the devil's foot root. I well remember how he plied me with questions as to the amount and the time that was needed for its effect, but I little dreamed that he could have a personal reason for asking. I thought no more of the matter until the vicar's telegram reached me at Plymouth. The villain had thought that I would be at sea before the news could reach me and that I should be lost for years in Africa, but I returned at once. Of course, I could not listen to the details without feeling assured that my poison had been used. I came round to see you on the chance that some other explanation had suggested itself to you. But there could be none. I was convinced that Mortimer Trogenis was the murderer, that for the sake of money and with the idea, perhaps, that if the other members of his family were all insane, he would be the sole guardian of the joint property— he had used the devil's foot powder upon them, driven two of them out of their senses, and killed his sister Brenda, the one human being whom I have ever loved, or who has ever loved me. There was his crime. What was to be his punishment? Should I appeal to the law? What were my proofs? I knew the facts were true, but could I help to make a jury of countrymen believe so fantastic a story? Might or I might not, but I could not afford to fail. My soul cried out for revenge. I have said to you once before, Mr. Holmes, that I have spent much of my life outside the law, and that I have come at last to be a law to myself. So it was even now. I determined that the fate he had given to others should be shared by himself. Either that or I would do justice upon him with my own hand. In all England there can be no man who sets less value upon his own life than I do at the present moment. Now I have told you all. Have yourself supplied the rest. I did, as you say, after a restless night, set off early from my cottage. I foresaw the difficulty of arousing him, so I gathered some gravel from the pile 
which you've mentioned, and I used it to throw up to his window. He came down and admitted me through the window of the sitting room. I laid his offense before him. I told him that I had come both as judge and executioner. The wretch sank back into a chair, paralyzed at the sight of my revolver. I lit the lamp, put the powder above it, and stood outside the window, ready to carry out my threat to shoot him should he try to leave the room. In five minutes he died. My God, how he died! But my heart was flint, for he endured nothing which my innocent darling had not felt before him. Here's my story, Mr. Holmes. Perhaps, if you loved a woman, you would have done as much yourself. At any rate, I am in your hands. You can take what step, because I have already said, there is no man living who can fear death less than I do. Holmes sat for some little time in silence. What were your plans, he asked at last. I had intended to bury myself in Central Africa. My work there is but half finished. Go and do the other half, said Holmes. I, at least, am not prepared to prevent you. Dr. Sterndale raised his giant figure, bowed gravely, and walked from the arbor. Holmes lit his pipe and handed me his pouch. Some fumes which are not poisonous would be a welcome change, said he. I think you must agree, Watson, that it is not a case in which we are called upon to interfere. Our investigation has been independent, and our actions shall be so also. You would not denounce the man? Certainly not, I answered. I have never loved Watson, but if I did, and if the woman I loved had met such an end, I might act even as our lawless lion hunter has done. Who knows? Well, Watson, I will not offend your intelligence by explaining what is obvious. The gravel upon the windowsill was, of course, the starting point of my research. It was unlike anything in the vicarage garden. Only when my attention had been drawn to Dr. Sterndale and his cottage did I find its counterpart. The lamp shining in broad daylight and the remains of powder upon the shield were successive links in a fairly obvious chain. And now, my dear Watson, I think we may dismiss the matter from our mind and go back with a clear conscience to the study of those Chaldean roots, which are surely to be traced in the Cornish branch of the great Celtic speech. We're always on the hunt for great stories like these to feature on the show. You can send your suggestions to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bedtime. If you found some value in our storytelling tonight, don't forget to show the love. There's a buy me a coffee link on every post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs>